Folks, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show, and uh, on this journey, I know I'm being protected by spirits, even if I never had a chance to necessarily interview them or even meet them in person, um, being able to connect with other brothers from the lineage of, some would say, black classical music, what used to be known as jazz, J-A-S-S, it's always cathartic to find um, even though skin color is such a petty thing to divide people on, it's always beautiful to find uh, a cat who wound up blending into the black subculture of jazz in my favorite period of time in jazz, the early 70s. And, um, you know, just uh, a lot of beautiful individual cats were coming up at that time. They found their individual voice on the bandstand, and there was really enough work to go around. So cats like my friend Lenny White was able to hit Joe Henderson to my guest, and it, there was no insecurity, there was no griping, and uh, it was a competitive but fun scene, and uh, he's still doing it today, still cooking the groove with Bill Goodwin. Bill Washer, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thanks, Jake. What, glad to be here. You know, Bill, it's an honor to have you, man. Um, I, I just, can you talk about the earliest time that you remember being able to just let go of the rudiments and just react to the music? Well, I started out in high school playing, uh, you know, the usual stuff that I would memorize, like uh, the Ventures and, the, you know, the Beatles and uh, the Stones I, I could relate to more because they were more of a blues band and I understood that music a right. lot more. Right. Um, but uh, there was a great, as far as, uh, that was, that was pretty much reacting to, to the music at the time when I, when I was playing, if that's what you're asking. Well, you know what it is like, like I'm trying to get to that point where maybe, you know, uh, you, everybody was kind of soloing within the groove, so to speak. I mean, the, the stone stuff, that's blues based. It's pretty straight ahead, but just with the environment, when you kind of, were just, everybody was, I don't want to say they were playing free, but they were playing jazz, you know? They were soloing within the context of the, of the tune and, and just how you learned to blend into that to become one living, breathing organism. Well, just listening and reacting to what's going on around you. Um, Lenny White was very interesting playing with because uh, he, as soon as another solo was started, he would change the groove. That is so sick, dude. You just made my day, dude. You just made my day, dude. Go ahead, continue. Yeah. He would just take a left turn. It would go into to something else. And it was it's fantastic, you know, because all of a sudden, oh, he's setting this up just for me. Oh, I love it, dude. So that that and that's eight I mean, as a lay person, non musician, I mean, his groove is always intoxicating, but that's very subtle that he would change the groove for just to tailor the soloist. It's unbelievable. Yeah, he would just he would he would set a set a new roadmap for the next soloist, and uh, he, he would go with it because I mean, I, I used to just stare at his ride symbol when I played. <laughs> dude, I've been listening to Crank and all afternoon gearing up for this dude. It's this filthiest. I've been looking for you. You know, even when I uh, yeah, it's it's. So you would say that you were. I mean, the bottom line is that you know, can you talk about? the gateway that led you into some of the hit. I mean, I don't think there's much hipper music that was going on at that time than in pursuit of blackness, uh, cranking that sh stuff is razor's edge stuff. And, and when I saw you on the albums, I was like this dude, you know, and then I saw you then like, uh, two weeks ago, I'm, I'm looking at this Gatto Barbieri album, uh, from 83 with Bernard Purdy. And you're not on that album. Uh, I don't think I did any recording with God. Well, Are you yeah. sure? Because there was a Bill Washer on guitar. Was this, anyway, so... Yeah, there is. There's some stuff, but I don't... I, see, people turn me on to it. I don't even know. Yeah, I think there's like bootlegs out there. But, you know, I'm not like an audiophile. I just wanted you to talk about how, you know, how you, you found your way into this world to begin with. Um, well, I went to Berkeley... And in the late 60s, 68, 69, 70, I guess 69, 70. And 
Well, I'll, I'll go back sure. to, to the high school days. There, there was a terrific, I grew up in Rochester, New York. There was a great radio station there. I can't remember what the call letters were. They used to advertise that they were 50,000 watts. So It was, was a ha- Harry Abramson, right? Aber, Ab- Harry Abrams uh, and Bill Artis, I think, was the other guy. Right, they, on a good, Barry Miles said on a good night it would stretch from upstate all the way down to, like, Delaware, Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. And they had they had jazz shows at night, and I used to, me and a piano player, uh, used to listen to that. I just fell in love with that music so much that uh, that kind of would set me off into into that direction. Um, were they playing? Were they playing bebop, post bop, or more like big band, or was, the whole? Yeah, thing? It was like it was like the blue note stuff, but they were playing bebop. But it was then it was getting into the Wayne Shorter. Oh my know. God, that's the best time to ever been yeah. hearing that stuff. It, it was yeah. It, it just it's, wow. I still love it. Wow. You know, I still yeah, it's unreal. Music. Yeah, and uh, so I, I applied to Berkeley and went there for a couple of years. There, I, I I went there to meet people more than anything. Well, and to learn. I, I I was just a blues player basically until I till I got into to uh, learning more about traditional harmonies and stuff at Berkeley. Uh, but let's be clear. I mean, I mean, this is so classic because, well, first of all, it, was it still called the Schillinger House at that time? No. Okay, because Ernie, well, I'm not trying to figure out what class you because I've done I've interviewed Jan Hammer, Perla, Mike Knock. Um, yeah. I'm just trying, you know, and Sko was there, but a little bit after you. And I'm just curious, like you said, you went to meet people. And that's one of the things that I'm, I'm so glad you guys have a little enclave down there in, in the Delaware water gap to actually get cats on the bandstand. Because, I mean, Berkeley at the time, uh, Herb Pomeroy had a, th- a big band, you know, Jackie right. Byard. So, I mean, you went there to, to find your sound. You weren't learning in... I mean, there was stuff in the academy, but it was, I mean, it was not, I mean, today music is being made in the academy, you know? I know. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's amazing how all these, all these colleges have programs now, jazz programs. Which, 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 which totally waters it down. But let's get back to Berkeley. Like what, tell me about a seminal thing that you can say that you, you know, it doesn't have to be theory based, but that you learned while you were at Berkeley that you took uh, with you the rest of your career. I, I just, well, I studied with Mick Goodrick, for, first of all. Rest in peace, man. Fucking baddest cat yeah. ever, dude. Yeah. And he ever. Was, he was a, such a spiritual teacher. I mean, oh, uh, I love this dude. he w- didn't, <laughs> he'd basically say, well, here's what you're going to, here's what they're going to want you to do at the end of the semester. Now let's, <laughs> now, let's, now let's talk about Ospensky or Georgiev or, you know. Dude, where is, this is these are the only things I read, man. It's the only yeah. stuff, the fourth way. I mean, Ospen- this yeah. is out yeah. of hand. Yeah. He's taught, so, so tell me, okay, everybody would, in today's square world, people would say, well, how is that going to help you? And so explain how that allowed you to be more yourself or, or sort of learn to find your own voice. Well, it, it 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 gets you more introspective, and and uh, but it also opens you up to anything. So it, it, it's kind of a balance. I don't know how to be- how to explain it. it it's about it's like a balancing thing. But uh, and me being a Libra, uh, <laughs> well, I don't. You know, I'm, I, my astrology is I got like an F in astrology, but I, I mean, I'm fascinated by. It. I don't. I, I, but but I guess more to the point, like. Did you maybe learn how that you could take the music out as far? There were certain rules in music, but you could stretch oh, well, stretch I those would, boundaries as far as you you could take it until it was out of bounds, so to speak. Well, I, I, yeah, I met I met people there uh, that just wanted to play free, oh, and we would unreal. we would do that. We would do that. Who were you? Who were you cooking with? Uh, there was a guy named Ted Nye who passed away a long time ago. Uh, wow. And Larry, I, Sands was another guy, and we just—it was—we were just crazy. <laughs> Wait a minute, what was the cat's name? Larry Sands. I think that was his name, dude. I don't know. These are mercurial cats. So I mean, you guys would just start some sort of group theme or sound, or or you just I would, well, I I I might write a, a melody like a a little eight bar melody or something. Right. 
it, it, it had no chords or anything, and we would just play that, and then we would take it out. And uh, and don't just just don't don't tell me there's any tapes of that still laying around. Oh, we never recorded anything. No. Right. So Goodrick. Okay. So he was spiritual. What I mean, can you talk about? Would you guys like go out and get coffee, and he'd just talk about uh, Gurdjieff in the fourth way? Like, I mean, this is oh, like. No, we we actually never we never hung out outside of the outside. Yeah, I, I think that you guys are like buddies. It was like student professor kind of thing, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah but I would go here and play. Well, no, that my, I'm curious about at that time. I mean, I know the band, the famous band from much later, ten years later, with Rock Alarm and Swallow and that. But who was he playing with then? Uh, he had a. He played with uh, uh, Alan Broadbent was there. Oh my God, Broad! Uh, Al, my and dear what, Alan, dude. And it might have been George Mraz, oh. and uh, they they had a they had a steady gig somewhere in one of the hotels, I think. That uh, that uh, I, I went to hear him a couple of times. For younger ca- for young for younger cats, uh, can I mean? Can you just talk about what made him such a unique player in your mind? Mick? Yeah. Uh, he, well, he had his own sound. Uh, it, it was very... Uh, sort of Abercrombie. They, they were kind of... Right. They were pretty... Uh, and they both kind of had... I used to call it the Boston sound. <laughs> I was just there, man, dude. That greasy Boston sound, you know? But this was more like uh, Jim Hall. I to, totally now no I'm sorry take the grease away but I'm just saying like yeah. Abercrombie gets a little bit raw sometimes Mick oh, yeah. Mick was just like in the in the ether man he was just out yeah Ronnie Glick a drummer friend he's just saw him he saw him play and he said that guy's at peace with his axe <laughs> that is the sickest line ever man. If, if you watch him play, it's tr- it's very true. That's just, unreal, man. That is uh, rest in peace. So, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I've interviewed Harvey Mason, and uh, you know, like Alan Dawson would call him when he was at Berkeley on a Saturday night. Hey, fill in for me with the Duke Ellington Big Band. I mean, did you get gigs Harvey, up there? I did a couple of gigs with Harvey. A couple of hits with Harvey Mason. Yeah. That, well, no, no, I mean, so no. Outside, did you have you had? Did you find up having get I mean steady gigs even while you were at Berkeley? Um no. Interesting. Really. Interesting. Well, I did, you know, I did uh I did do a show. I did uh Boston had a show uh of Hair. They did Hair. Right. And I played that uh so that's not really a jazz thing, but there were some great players. No, I, I it doesn't have to be jazz. I mean, was it Idris in playing drums? Idris Muhammad or no? Um, no, guy's name was Bob Mason, I think, and but Abe Laborio was playing bass. My he, my hero, my one of my yeah. dearest uncles, dude. I freaking, I, yeah. Harry Blazer was up. So it was was Blazer up there too at that time, or just Abe was there? Uh, I just remember Abe. Right, and 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 so did you? Were you going over? Uh, I guess Gary Burton hadn't started teaching there yet, had he? I th- I don't know. If, I don't remember him. Te- I know he had graduated there. Uh, I don't remember him teaching there. Maybe he came in later. He he, he did because yeah, he came in during SCO, and you were already gone. So you did you even? That's the funny part is that did you even graduate? No. See, I love this, dude. The fact it's that you could honestly in like about a year after me, I think. Yeah, exactly, and that, and then Burton came aboard, Swallow came aboard. That's how they formed that band with Matheny. But the um, so explain. So I, I got the gig. Well, let me let me let me tell yeah. you how it happened. But yeah. what, I, there was a bass player there named Don Pate. Is he still with us? By the way, that's a good question. Okay, because I I mean, there's uh, I think I think he plays with Tsiji Munoz. Anyway, I don't know if you know who that cat is, but uh, go ahead. No, but that's uh, no. I I haven't heard from him in years. But he was he was from, he was from New York, and I I was instinctively looking for people from New York when I was there because right. I knew that's where I wanted to end up. And he kept talking about Lenny White. <laughs> so, <laughs> Dude, I am loving this Lenny White everywhere today. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. Well, so anyway, he uh, he got a he got a Don got a gig at 
one of the universities in North Carolina, we were going to play with an, uh, a quartet with an orchestra. And the quartet was uh, Don, uh, a great organ player named Webster Lewis. Whoa. Uh, and Lenny and me. No way, dude. Yeah. Wait, hold on. Okay. You and Pete were like playing a duo gig up there? How did you even connect with him? No, we were uh, we, we were just we weren't doing any gigs, but we would get together and play. So so Pete, but Pete, so he was your he was your peer from New York and was obsessed with Lenny White. He's yeah, he okay. kind of hooked me up with Lenny, and then when we did that gig uh, in uh, in North Carolina, then I was hooked up with Lenny, and I was hooked up with Webster Lewis. Webster had had some gigs in Roxbury. Uh, in Rochester, Massachusetts. Oh my! Break this! No, I mean I went to BU. I know that very. I cannot believe. So were these were these, were these brothels or what were they? No, it was a restaurant. I think it was called the West End, if I remember. And is it primarily like kind of like a uh, black patronage kind of place? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Soul food. I, yeah. I, I bought, uh, yeah. I'd walk to it, and the hookers would be hitting on me, you know. <laughs> Dude, Washer, I, I knew. See, I, I, I knew this is what I knew. This is a magical life. This is like the most magical life. Did you recognize that you were part of this incredibly magical subculture, and how lucky you were? Um. Or maybe in hindsight, I, maybe maybe it wasn't. Maybe, dude, it's a fantasy for me. I'm 44 years old. At the time, it was just these were my heroes. This is who I wanted to play with. So, um, I, I put, I made it my mission to, to really dive into this culture because I love the music. It was just the, the best stuff I ever heard. And I wanted to play with these people and they were more than welcome. I, I was more than welcome. I never felt, uh, weird about it at all. Well, everybody, I mean, from John at rest in peace, Abercrombie to, um, to the you know to the Brecker everybody I mean if, if you could play and you were a good cat and open minded I mean you it was all you was always accepted but I guess exactly you know like coming from sort of more of a Eurocentric uh, um, sort of educational perspective um, <laughs> just like my generation has learned like to deal with curriculums. And things that are codified, and I don't think you can codify blues or jazz per se. And I just was hoping you could talk a little bit about the styles of leadership that Henderson and and Curtis Fuller exhibited in the studio. What I mean by that is just the idea of not a lot of verbal discussion. Maybe there was. But I'm curious if you could describe their leadership style because today there's, I mean, we're talking right now, but in the studio, not only are there just so many distractions, just there, people are always trying to explain stuff as opposed to just having the, the vocabulary, uh, you know, and just being able to play off the cuff. And I just want you to talk about their style, leadership styles. Um, Joe was the quietest man I ever met. The Phantom, was, the Phantom. Very and, and quiet, and uh, that's where, and, and Curtis Curtis was in that band. Uh, it was Curtis and, and uh, uh, Pete Yellen and um, Joe were the, were the horn line, and then it was George Cables on piano. It was... Uh, Stanley. Stanley on bass and Lenny on drums. Sick. And that was like the greatest band I ever played with, probably to this day, I mean, that I, at, at the time, I mean, it was just, I was in another world. Jeez, this is my, you're blowing my mind right now, dude. I, this and, is the greatest thing I've ever heard about. How, so. And Joe, Joe yeah. was such a genius. Um, I, I got to tell you this one story please, about Joe. Please, That this was, uh, this was during the Watergate era. So I don't know if you were around then or not. Born in 78, but I mean, I'm very familiar with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we did a uh, we did a hit in Buffalo, and Joe was Joe always started the gig. He would just count. He wouldn't call a tune. He would just count off. <laughs> we would just play, you know. And Lenny would just set up the tent. We'd play, and eventually Joe would 
segue it into uh it usually was a like invitation right something like that. right and we played it well this night in buffalo he started out and it lasted the whole set he never segued oh my it. this is on you had was it like 50 minutes an hour or something like that yeah yeah and we all and, and lenny was doing his thing you know change for each solo changing up the groove and and it and at the end of the at the end of the set joe gets on the mic and he says that that piece was entitled "A Tribute to Daniel Ellsberg." Wow, he was the, he was the man that discovered the Pentagon. The Pentagon, papers. absolutely, Pentagon Papers, absolutely. And, and so it, it was just pretty, it was political, and and he and he had a name for each section for each soloist, uh, and I, I just remember the, when I had my solo, I had. I went into a thing playing um, <laughs> taps, you know, like the Trump, like at a funeral. Sure. Oh my God. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. With all this Hendrix, all the Hendrix stuff, you know, and and he called my he called my section body count. The wow, the wah pedals were going. Yeah. Oh, um, dude, was you're name. this is unbelievable, dude. You're making my year, dude. This is un. Hold on a second. So you're saying that normally. You would open the set in some kind of just groove jam, then you'd go into a more standard tune like invitation. On right. this night, he didn't call out a tune. You found out afterwards there were all these parts of the song, or you guys did did you we were aware? Yeah, we just did it. Holy it cow. Totally like, spontaneous. And uh, oh my uh God. Uh, 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 yeah, Daniel Ellsworth. Yeah, he was the Pentagon. But it was. It, but I just want to be clear. Only afterwards, you found out yeah. about this. This how intricate it was. Yeah. After we just finished the whole set, going through all these different things, Joe remembered everything of what had just happened. Wow. And came with a title for each solo session. Washer man. Oh my God, man. That's insane. So I just want to be clear. Pate, you and you guys cook with that orchestra in North Carolina. Ultimately, talk about the day that you did. You go to New York with a gig, or did you just hit the road? And I was still living in Boston at that time when we did that North Carolina thing. And then uh, Lenny Lenny took to me and he said, "I'm going to tell Joe about you," you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and sure enough, he, he he to his word, he did and. That's when I started doing some hits with, with, with Joe. And Curtis was in that band. And Curtis wanted to do, uh, he wanted to do a, a record. That was the Crankin' record. I'm looking at it right now, man. It's Bill Washer. Uh, this is the best thing ever. I guess they contractually couldn't put his real name on there, Ramon Morris. It says Ray Morose. Bill, oh. Bill Hardiman, Stan, a guy named Stan Clark, who we know. <laughs> George Cables, Lenny White, Curtis Fuller, uh, Bill Wash. There you are. Kurt, it's, I mean, it's just, and I was just listening to Maze is my favorite tune, man. Maze, dude. Do you remember the, the, uh, the, the bridge on that or whatever? The horn, the horn orchestration is nasty. And you're playing out of your mind. Oh, thank you. I, I just remember that uh, we had a rehearsal like the day or day or two before just to get together <clears throat> and this this woman this woman came in and was it was uh it was Helen Morgan uh Lee Morgan's wife sure showed up at this rehearsal and what I just remember when I was uh I was watching a uh a documentary on Lee Morgan. I saw that. No, I saw that. That's a crazy one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and her, and she's, she, they did some interviews with her. And as soon as I heard her voice, I went, wait a minute, that's the woman that was at that rehearsal with Kurt. And I, and I, I texted Stanley. I said, was she at that rehearsal? And he said, yeah, that was her. Wow. So you just flashed on the minute you saw the doc, you flashed back to that. I, I heard, yeah, I heard, I heard that voice. I recognized that voice because she was so nice. She's like, oh, you're from Boston and you play like that. And I remember her saying that. It was like, she was impressed, but the title song of that record was just something he threw it. We just threw it at this in the studio. He wasn't going to play that song, Crankin'. 
it was uh he they had an arrangement of i think never can say goodbye or something like that sure sure one of the one i think either ray or, or bill brought in and and curtis just said hey, let's 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 just do this just play rhythm changes as fast as we can so that's what cranking was <laughs> did that did that did that on the jazz stations in new jersey did uh uh, either with the milestone stuff or or crank and did it? I'm not saying it became a a pop hit, but did did it get radio play? I really don't know. Okay, so you're telling me that you were so busy with with your life that there. I mean, granted, it wasn't like you were sitting around listening to the radio at two thirty in the morning. You probably got finishing a gig, but um, I just wonder what it would would have been like to hear you being part of this sort of post bop spiritual sonic bath and then be able to hear that on the radio is just especially regional radio would just be mind-blowing but you never got hit and you never knew if those any of those i mean i know the sidewinder that was blue note that was a big crossover hit les mccann was but i often wonder about like cranking in pursuit of blackness like those records like i know they were played i just wonder if any of the cats ever heard themselves you know or if they even cared i i probably did i i it didn't I guess it didn't leave that much of an impression. <laughs> well, you should go back and dude, it's the best album, man. Oh, thanks. That no, I mean it's really good. It's cool and can you just talk about that brotherhood though? I mean, there's a is there a black aesthetic to like for instance like Joe didn't say a lot. I, you know, I've interviewed all the cats. You're the latest one, but like, you know, he'd be at the lighthouse in Hermosa Beach, finish the gig. Guys are backstage hanging out, and they're like, "Where's Joe?" And they're like, oh, "He drove back to San Francisco." And then on the on the other side, you have guys like Ron McClure. You know, Joe would call him up, and they'd talk on the phone for seven hours. The guy knew multiple languages. I don't need to tell you this, but the guy. I mean, it's just like, I mean, just from a different world. I just wonder if in the studio was there really were those guys micromanagers, or they were like, "Yo, let's let's just." maybe run it through one time or two and just like, let's take the first take, you know, let's burn. Yeah. You usually do like two takes no more than that. It's usually enough. Um, uh, this session. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The other thing I remember about that session was, uh, I was using it in effect. I was using a lot of effects back. Then. Absolutely. Thank God you were. And, uh, I let I let Lenny. Uh, I had a thing called an echoplex. Absolutely, dude. Phil Woods threw one of those on his horn. <laughs> well, Lenny put it on the snare drum. Oh, dude, no way! And, and, and used it during a drum solo. I, I'm I'm not sure what track it's on, but it, it's on one of the tracks in there. On the on the Cur- on the Curtis album. Yeah, that's yeah. freaking classic. And he he used it. And he was totally musical with it. I mean, the way he used it was brilliant. Were you, um, like, can you talk about how you viewed, you know, I remember interviewing Michael Shreve, he's become a very good friend, he talked about seeing Billy Cobham with Mahavishnu Orchestra uh, at the Fillmore, maybe, or one of those places, and uh, <clears throat> Winterland, and, and, you know, Cobham, the man, you know, was playing with such force, and, you know, physicality, and gracefulness, and, 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 and he just put, pushing people up against the wall, you know, and, and Michael was like, he's like, I'm never going to be that. And that's okay. Like, I am going to find my own sound. He didn't try to compete. There were a lot of Cobham wannabes and things like that, is what I'm trying to say. A lot of people that tried to comp him. And yeah. that was kind of a futile existence, really. And, and so Michael took a different path. And, you know, the highs and lows, but they come with it. And he went on his own way. So I'm going to throw out the names here. And I can say the same thing about John McLaughlin. Well, I want to ask you about three cats. Is the, uh, I'm sorry, just two actually. Just you know, guys like at that time, Demiola McLaughlin. Like, you know, how did you look at that? How did you when you saw them? Were you like the way Michael was, or talk a little bit about that? Well, um, John, the, the first time I heard him play, he was with uh, that Tony Williams and Larry Young. Trio. Emergency, yeah, 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 they, Lifetime, yeah. They played that. They played in Boston, and I went to hear him, and 
I was and uh, Mick Mick was there too, and and we I saw Mick later, and Mick said, "Yeah, this guy's yeah, this guy's happening." And I said, "Yeah." <laughs> uh, well, was it the Jazz and, Workshop or Paul's Mall? Yeah, it was, uh, the Jazz Workshop. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then uh, a couple of years later, I don't know how much later, but that, that he had started his Mahavishnu band, right? And I I went down to New York and and heard that and I was so blown away that I got in my car and drove, I was going to go back to Boston. I drove out to Cape Cod and sat on the beach with my guitar and practiced all night. <laughs> Whoa, dude. I'm dude, That's, that's an amazing fucking story. He just blew me away. It was just, this guy is like his technique and his, his ideas and everything. So I was a total, I was trying to be like him, which, we're, we're, so let me ask you, so you gearing up, you were listening to some of the orchestra records and then you went to see him or that was because. This was before he even made a record with Mahavishnu. This was before his first record came out. That and they, are you telling me they played the jazz workshop? Oh, no, no, no. No, that was where uh, the the. Uh, no, I know that's where, that's where the, oh, the lifetime was. But I mean, if they hadn't made a record yet, there's no way they're playing a big venue. Yeah, no, they, yeah, they were playing it. I think it was the, the, the top of the gate. Symphony and, Hall? No, not Symphony Hall, maybe? I, I, I'm just wondering oh, what... No, no, it was a club in New York, uh, in the village. Uh, it, I think it was... Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, it was... Wait, so it was... They were playing... And you're telling me that night, after the gig, you drove to Cape Cod? Yeah, I was on my way back to Boston. I said, uh, Oh, I see, so you're like, I can't even, I can't even go back. I gotta go somewhere and just cold, <laughs> totally just... It can't, yeah. could, I hope it was in the summer, man. It would be cold out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. It, it so, was, so it, how did you sort of move, Pat? Like, did you like because I I remember interviewing Mer Meryl Brigante, who was the drummer for many things, but also Loggins and Lucina, and and they had all these great bills back in the day where you'd have. I don't need to tell you this. It was just you know you'd have Loggins and Lucina opening for Mahavishnu Orchestra, and he he they played their set huge Boston Commons packed thousands of people and he gets off, cleans up, goes out and, um, sees all these guys and like, you know, you know, you know, sort of like scrappy college jerseys and white robes. And he's like, what is this? And Cobham blew him into the next world. And, and Merle was so distraught. He went back to L.A. and Milt Holland, the great percussionist, uh, drummer, just basically said to him, he goes, yeah, you know, you're never going to be Billy Cobham. And he goes, and Billy Cobham's never going to be you. So be right. you. Be you. And I just wonder, like, how you sort of moved past that night after being with the Seagulls on Cape Cod. <laughs> uh, it, 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 yeah, it, it came to a realization that, yeah, I just, I'm going to... I got to just do my own thing. I got to play within myself, basically. Uh, and there was, there was, there were great players in Boston that I, I played. And we, you know, I actually, I had a, I shared a, I shared places with uh, Harvey S. Do you know who that is? Or well, he Harvey was the first, I, dude, I, dude, Harvey S., man. I was, he's the first cat. I interviewed him a few months ago and he was the first one. I was like, you got, you got to connect me with Washer because he told me about this group. Yeah, we played with Barry. He got me on the Barry Miles, Barry Miles group. This was right after uh, Al left. Al was in. I know Al was in that group, uh, and then you came. So Washer took over for Demiola. Right. That right. to me, that must have been. That's hyper challenging music too. I mean, and it's not. Yeah. It yeah. still burns though. You know, that must have been a, actually a good way to sort of wipe the slate clean and just let your own sound groove out. You know. Well, you're playing. You're playing. Barry's music, so exactly, that, yeah. dude, the freaking man, dude. In that vein, and uh, Al went on to play with Chick from there. What did you see? Um, what, what did you what, did you go see? Return to I mean, Stan and Lenny. You must have been backstage at those shows. The first, the first time I saw, well, Return to Forever. Actually, Stan Stanley brought me up to to Flora's apartment. Uh, oh my dear before, lord! Oh, yeah, this Andy is sick. Started. Yeah, he was he was trying to get me in there and into uh, Return to Forever. It was that was before it was even called that. Oh my, uh, dude, you're blowing they, me away right now. Don't even go there, dude. Something together, and and uh, I remember Flora says, "Well, do, well, do you play? Uh, do you play like uh, uh, 
Brazilian type nylon string guitar. And I said, no. And I thought, well, I'm out now. <laughs> that, that thing about the guitar is there's just so many different ways to play it. Sure. I, 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 I embrace that actually. I still do. I love to play all different styles. And, uh, but anyway, uh, so. Well, what's fascinating is that that was before the, the, the name of the band, because I was just listening to their first album and, um, it, they wound up. What's that? I heard them play was, I think was at the Vanguard and Steve Gadd was playing drums. Absolutely. The tapes are there. Gadd was, Joe Farrell was in the band maybe then too. Yeah. He might. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I think Chick wanted to go. He was really impressed with with Mahavishnu's thing, and he wanted to get a guitar player in there. And he went out to. They were playing out in San Francisco. And no, I. You know, it's Washer. I'm going to send you a link to my. I've written my fifth book's about to come out. My first book is. It's all these. It, I've done 1,800 interviews. I know we're just getting hip to each other, but the entire story of that is broken down because they. It was between Barry Finnerty. And uh, and um, Connors, uh, Bill Connors, Bill yes. Connors, right? Bill. Anyway, also there were, it, it was it was in conjunction with the fact that uh, uh, Ayrton and Flora got busted and with overseas with marijuana. So so the band changed, but that was it was at the uh, Keystone oh. Corner, right? You know, so that and then at the same time, so Chicks begging Lenny. Lenny was in Azteca at the time. And he's begging Lenny to please come back and join the band. Gad was in the band. Um, but at the same time, Journey was approaching Lenny. Did you know that? No. Yeah, so the band Journey had him rehearsing. And they loved him. They wanted him in the band. But he decided to go back with Chick and leave Azteca. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, that's, how it, and that's how it formed. But, I mean, you were there, like, before the, it was like they were having, like, rehearsals and stuff. Well, they were playing at the they were playing at the Vanguard, and and I remember on a break, uh, Stan came Stanley came over. And <laughs> I Stan, him. I love how you called him Stan, dude. He came, he came <laughs> over. Yeah, he said, "Yeah, I I told Chick about you, you know, to to do the gig, and and but this guy showed up in San Francisco and and uh, and played, and so Chick liked him. So he was talking about Bill Connor, I think. That's right." And uh, at that time, I was, I was reverting. I was like, <clears throat> I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more into bebop now. <laughs> right, 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 right. I had never really gotten into it the way I should have. I had gone right from uh, playing rock and roll and then going right into the fusion kind of thing. And I said, you know, I, I, I I'm, that's when I started hanging out with uh, uh, Steve Grossman and, and I met uh, and Elvin's band and, and, and played with them a little bit. Well, you played with Elvin? Uh, yeah, I'm not steady. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, dude. This is blowing me away. Hold on for a second. You, and if, if people can, some people would, Phil Woods said the first, <laughs> he told me the first fusion band was Dizzy Gillespie and Chano Pozo, you know? So like, there's, you know, there's very many different ways to like, but like in terms of electric music, the period that you were in when you just got dropped into that, that is to yeah. me, that's the definition of fusion. That's when it was most authentic and just still actually almost acoustic electric, wasn't fully electric. But you're telling me, so you were like, you go ahead. Was that his first record was called Fusion, I think. Whose first record was, was it? Ayrton? Michael, Arba- Michael Urbaniak. Michael, Ur- you're absolutely right. And that's that 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 is uh, fusion Atma or something. But the uh, you're telling me that you were now going back to Mick for a minute. You know, just the idea of like you got into Barry's band. I don't hear any bebops. I mean, Barry's band was fusion. That was the first. Yeah. You know, I mean, no. like it doesn't sound to me like you were in a in a in a bebop bag at all. So I, I mean, no. it, I'm, I'm surprised you would. But maybe you were thinking that was like a. A better way to a, a better way to sing for your supper, so you wouldn't be a starving genius. I'm just curious why you said that to him. I, um, I just felt I missed something. You wow! Know, I, I needed it was like I needed more of a found that foundation. Uh, Interesting. I mean, I love. Don't get me wrong. I mean, when I was in high school, I listened to every West Montgomery and every Kenny Burrell and Grant Green and. Uh, one guy uh, that I really liked was a guy named Hank Garland. 
Dude, way ahead of his time, dude. Nashville guy. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Hahn, too. Unfortunate yeah. ending. What, what, what happened to Garland? To, to uh, uh, well, he, he, was in a, he was in a car wreck. Oh, I don't know that. And, and, and lost all his motor skills. Uh, you know, I just I, and I just was talking to the the keyboard organist from the Amazing Rhythm Aces yesterday, and he, I didn't even know Al Jackson was murdered. I mean, these heroes going down so hard, man. Lee Morgan, you know, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. You, where was the steady Joe Henderson gig when you were like playing locally in New York? Where were you? Were you playing up in Harlem? Um, I, I, my gigs. With Joe, I never. I don't think I did any gigs with Joe in New York. Really, we were Rose on the road. Uh, Can you talk about? Because I mean, Rick Laird, rest in peace, was talking about some of these epic and at times insane uh, road journeys through Europe. These trains through feet of snow, staying at like brothels, and you know, out of the money you got for the week, you had to pay your hotel room. I mean, can you talk about some of these tours? Uh, I, I. Didn't really. <laughs> you didn't go to Europe. <laughs> I know because Joe was always. It was always just off the cuff. I mean, I I, I need to know. Uh, yeah, yeah, the only the only Europe jazz gigs I did were always festivals. So it, it wasn't. I didn't do any really uh, local jazz clubs in Europe. What about what about just like a domestic tour? Can you talk about that? Where you you have like a. I mean, how did you get the gear around? Where, did you have to? Did you stay in? Did you have to go to the white side of town? I mean, was it past that point where you could like? I think it's just fascinating these mixed race bands at that time, you know. Oh uh, yeah, there were never any issues like that. But of course, we didn't play in the south, so it was. It would have been different there, probably. Were you playing like the like Baker's Keyboard Lounge in Detroit? I'm just yeah. trying to figure out what the yeah. venues were that you were playing. Yeah, that. Which, which, uh, which, and what's the one in uh, Chicago? Uh, well, Mr. Uh, Kelly's was more of a traditional jazz club. Uh, yeah. But it was somewhere down. Uh, but also, so you'd go, you do Midwest, and then would you would you make it out to the West Coast too? Yeah, what's, what's the club in San Francisco out there? It was uh, the Keystone Corner. Keystone Corner. Keystone right. Corner you did. And uh, Joe ended up living out there. That's right, Absolutely. Girlfriend was friend. I don't know if he ever married her, but um, yeah. So I I played there with Joe, and a couple of times I think. Um, uh, wow, that is so. So uh, you started. I mean, I did. I did the only interview ever, uh, at least that's you know up online with um, Steve Grossman, and it was a fascinating exchange. He told me. Uh, you know, he was the first, even though Pat Martino, my dear brother, rest in peace, told me that, uh, he told me this without mentioning his name. Grossman said that Coltrane took his teeth out when he played, he played on his gums and it blew my mind. And That's, yeah, I didn't know that. yeah, so, um, you know, and, and I just, you know, Stevie, I mean, those guys, they, you know, that Jewish mafia saxophone section there with the Brecker, you know, and. And, and Liebman. So you were in, was there still a viable loft scene or were you guys playing like? Where? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had a loft. I had a loft on the uh, 6th Avenue. And, uh, that's actually, that's how I met, uh, uh, uh boy, I'm flipping all over the place. No, yeah. No, I'm stretching you down. I'm sorry. The memory. No, no, no. Yeah. This is, I, I tried to make some notes before I talked. No, Washer, you're doing a great job, by the way. We're, you know, we're bouncing everywhere. Yeah. Um, uh, Steve had a, there was a, they had a place, Steve had a place in Long Island, uh, called Willoughby place. It was, it was a street it was on and it was, uh, Steve, another sax player named Gary Prebeck, um, Frank Mitchell, a sax player, uh, Frank Mitchell. Yeah. Frank, he was Leo Mitchell's cousin i believe it was and we would just play all day and we would play we'd switch instruments oh dear i play piano i'd be playing i could can't play it no but, i mean but, you you do the best you could yeah but steve was amazing steve could play all those instruments steve could play piano too oh god yeah yeah and oh, trumpet dear. he played great trumpet 
Dude, I mean, that is... So are you taking yeah. the Long Island Railroad out there or are you just driving out or what would you do? How would you get out there? That's a good question. I, I, Because I, I, I was, I grew up in Stony Brook, so I took that train many a time into the city. I, yeah, I, I mean, I... I I'm asking you very, that. very insignificant details here, but, you know, just... I mean, so you'd play all day. Did those... Did those gigs, or you're saying you played live with, uh, not steady, but I wanted you to talk about being a... It, when, wasn't, a, it wasn't a gig. No, it when you play, I'm sorry, I segued into, uh, I need you to talk about the first time you played with Elvin. Oh, Elvin, okay, so um, that's, that's uh, Steve was playing, Steve was working with Elvin, so uh, they were going to be at the jazz workshop, and Steve said, well, why don't you, uh, why don't you sit in with us? So, uh, I, I, uh, on a break, I, I went up to Elvin. I said, uh, hi, uh, I'd like, I'd like to play with you. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, uh, Gene Pearl was on the band and, uh, and then, uh, so was Dave Liebman. It's the best freaking band. dude. And it was, it was terrific. And, and, uh, Elvin, Elvin looked like. Elvin gave me a look that would scare the hell out of me. No, I, dude, but I, dude, he did it to everybody. But then, he, then those teeth would come out when he starts smiling, you know? He could give you that, that look. And I just looked back at him and he just said, bring your axe. Yes. And he was very, he was generous about letting people sit in. And, bring uh, your axe. He said, bring your axe. You're talking about Jazz Workshop in Boston, right? Not San Francisco. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. you were yeah. still in Boston or you were up there for, on another gig? No, I was still in Boston. Interesting. I, I, what? So okay. So, and then uh, that experience. I mean, this had to be seventy. You know, right. So this is actually before. Oh, wait, no. It's so interesting. It's fair to say. I'm going back and thinking about. I mean, cranking. Were you making albums and still in living in Boston and just coming down for the recording dates? Cranking was the first rec jazz record I ever made. That we, I was ever on. It was before uh, the the Henderson record. I was never on. I never recorded with Joe. You never recorded with Joe. Interesting. No. Okay, so because that band that that it was everybody but you, Yellen, uh, yeah, all, all those. I played that band a lot. But um, and what I, was I, that? Talk about the pet that band. I mean, what made it special? I mean, you know, Horace Silver. Though everybody was playing like. I don't know, like, to me, like, one reason that was a cool time was that it was still kind of acoustic-based, you know? Maybe the bass had a pickup on it, but uh, Stan, yeah. Stanley was still playing uh, uh, upright, you know? Yeah, but he, play, he played it like an electric. I mean, that his action was so low on that bass that he could just fly over that thing. Jesus. But, um, <clears throat> see, I, I was kind of like, Joe, when Curtis couldn't make a gig, that's, I was kind of like a sub for Curtis. Interesting. <clears throat> And I, not that, and he didn't really give me any any parts to play except for the except for the pe Pentagon Papers, or the yeah the the well, uh, the, well, the gig was, in Buffalo. That, yeah, that that that's I, still maybe the greatest story I've heard in years. I mean, I've heard a lot of stories. That's my favorite joke. I, I just um, it, it's it's and and so he was even though he was so he really spoke everything that he felt deep inside about politics social issues, races, he expressed that through the music, and that was very evident that night. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, so uh, you would, you you would, I'm sorry, you played, so Cranking, Cranking, Cranking was, and you were still in Boston. I was still in Boston. You were still in Boston at that point. So, um, then, what was the impetus after that to move to New York? Well, I... That was my goal. I was always going to move to New York. So it was just a matter of connecting it. Um, I, I, well, I also met, yeah, this, I, should, I should put this in here too, because, because a good friend of mine <clears throat> at Berkeley, uh, a pianist named Andy Laverne. I, 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 you know, I've been talking to Mike Richmond a lot, and I got to interview Andy, man. And Mike, yeah, Mike, Mike was. But Andy, uh, he, He's he's from the New York area, so he I knew he was going to go down there, and he he said let's let's do this. Uh, there's going to be a jam session down at uh, Mark Cohen's loft, who's now known as Mark Copeland. Yeah, my, I, he's my man. A piano, amazing player. Yeah, I love yeah. him. I, I visited him. Yeah, 
with his his alto sax playing. He was a sax player before he. Played I, I I he told me about gigs that he was playing with Abercrombie when he was playing yeah. horn. Yeah. So I think it was. Uh, I don't remember who the drummer was. We had a session. It was uh, it was me and uh, Abercrombie and Andy and uh, it was like Al Foster. Me. Maybe. Was, <laughs> Maybe not. Clint Houston on bass. Dude, holy cow, the baddest cat, man. I don't know if there was a drummer or not, but... A drummerless band. band. That would have been hard to, to... Anyway, go ahead. No, there was a drummer, and I can't remember his name, and I think he since passed. I, uh, hmm. uh, well, if, anyway, you th- if you think about it, you know, text me the name. But go yeah. ahead. So we played, and, and, and Mark had this gig... Uh, with the Joffrey Ballet, they, the Joffrey Ballet was doing uh, a couple of rock and roll ballets. Wow! And he said, uh, "You, you want to do this gig? I want to get you to New York because I—that—that's the gig that got me down to New York because I needed some kind of some kind of employment to, to move." So beautiful. So I mean, they, when you, so what would I mean? Ballet is more to me. I think. Uh, not symphonic, but uh, this you're you're doing a full on rock. You have like a rock rhythm section kind of thing. Well, they're very they're a very uh, uh, modern type ballet company because they were doing they were doing these rock ballets. Sure, and and at the time it was very controversial, and that's where my that's where I met my wife actually. That's She's so freaking dancers. beautiful, man. And uh, so that that got me that got me into New York pretty much thanks to. Thanks to Mark, basically, and and uh, I, you know, I was always I always knew Abercrombie was a couple of years ahead of me. I think it, it, in Boston, and he moved down ahead of me. Absolutely, he was, and he was in Dreams, you know, playing in Dreams with yeah. with uh, you know Randy Brecker putting the wah pedal on. I mean, you, <laughs> you, um, was it too dark? I mean, once you, so yeah, you had the steady gig with Copeland, the ballet. Um, was there? Did you entertain the idea of being part of, or were you part of Radio Registry? Oh yeah. And and can you talk about some of the? I mean, because I'm the you know these are like to me like spiritual uh, jazz albums at the end of a chapter that we've been talking about in in music history and it, so like what sessions? How did you get your foot in the door? Because the the scene was already kind of locked down. Uh, I kind of got in. You're talking about registry. Like, like, were you doing suds and duds, or there are, is there stuff on the discography that just doesn't show up that you played on? No, no. The, the only thing I really used registry for was like jingles, those kind of days. Sure, sure, sure. Like possible twenty. You know, they call you and say, "We got, we got a, got a, we got an hour with a possible twenty for you at such and such studio." You know, and can you do it? And I said, "Yeah, sure, okay." Or no, I can't, or whatever. And then you, then you go down, go down to the, the session and was, play for a minute commercial or something. You know? I'm curious about like because you were there, like that Jim and Andy's that 50 sec. Was that scene disintegrating when you were there? What was the vitality? Yeah, it was yeah that had wrapped up pretty much. I mean, I. I'd been in. I'd gone in there a couple of times. I remember. Uh, <laughs> I, I remember sitting at the bar in there one time, and 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 Joe Beck set a firecracker off on the stool next to me. <laughs> uh, dude, what did that dude? The ultimate prankster, man. <laughs> Scared the crap out. Of, yeah. You know that dude was like a godfather. He was kind of a wrecking crew of the of New York. You know. Yeah. Oh, he 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 and the whole uh, disco scene. He, produced a lot of those records i don't think i was even hip to that yeah jesus i mean you hear all those dave sanborn solos on those records that's it's uh, hard for me to listen to a lot of recorded music after like 75 just in this i mean that's not true to i mean i listen but but uh especially as it relates to that word jazz just you know the idea that there was in i remember interviewing ernie watts and he just started talking about how harvey you know drummers especially like by the early 80s you know they'd have their you know chip they'd have their drum chip and and there's certain grooves and people would just put that into the processor and you know ernie would come down and you know they couldn't they couldn't put a uh uh a click they couldn't put a 
a, a chip on a saxophone, so he would have to do his solos. But it was the lack of human interaction in the studio just killed the music. I don't care how how well you engineered it. It was like the sterility was so there, where with you, at least in those early sessions, there was a good amount of leakage, you know. Bob Shad yep. was a genius. There's nothing wrong with that. The music comes across as burning and authentic. And so, uh, but, you know, everyone had to sing. So uh, you did jingles and stuff, but what were you doing for, for other bread? I mean, were you did you have a steady gig somewhere in New York? or, or I you... was always, always, always a side man. I just wanted to be, you know, a side man. I never really wanted to pursue a, a, a career. Uh, you know, I never got an agent or any. I never did anything like that. Uh, well, I mean, what kind of side bands were? Because you were, I guess, you know, you'd be in the studios during the day, but at night, where would you go play? Uh, it depended. Uh, well, I there's another. Uh, there was a band I played with, uh, uh, Teru Nakamura and the Rising Sun Band. Whoa! Which had some incredible players in it. Um, Who was in that band? Uh, well, Grossman was in it for a while. Um, then Bobby Minster came in. Sure. Did it. Uh, Mark Gray, keyboard player, who's passed away. Um, Taro, Taro was great. He was like an Art Blakey kind of guy because he he wasn't a fancy. He, he wouldn't tell us. We would bring in our own music. He would do our tunes. <laughs> I kind of related to. Art I did. I did. But he just had. He just. He just played what he felt, and there was no adherence to like perfection by any means it was just burn it, it was burn but it was it, uh, it, it, the tunes were great i mean uh, bob Menzer's writing is just unbelievable totally he's such a tremendous writer and and then uh different, different sax players came through uh, jerry nywood came through mm. uh, uh steve uh, uh bob did it most of the time when i was there and he had a he had a Taro had a loft, so we would we would play up there. But he he hustled and got gigs, so that that band worked quite quite a bit. What do you remember the clubs you would play at? Um, yeah, if I could remember the name. I mean, I, I couldn't. Can't. I mean, I, I can't see you playing the Vanguard. You know, I'm, I'm just like trying to figure out like, because that's a. I mean, you know, it all these. I know all the the black. You know, like the East or Slugs, but you weren't playing that. You know. Um. No. It was mostly, it's mostly restaurant type places that had jazz. All right, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna swing you back to your youth for a minute. Uh, the Pithod Club was. Did you go there in Rochester? Uh, I went there a couple of times. Yeah, I heard uh, I heard George Benson there when he was with uh, Ronnie Smith. Oh my God, my yeah. my hero! I, God, Jesus! I mean, that must have been fantastic. And so, like, because. That was a hotbed of activity, man. There's a lot. There's a chitlin circuit that ran through there. Yeah, yeah. But I, so I wasn't really a part of that. Yeah, you're too I, young for I that. Little, yeah. I was a little white boy that came in and, and and grooved on the music, but I never felt out of place. I mean, I was never felt unwelcome in any of this, any of those situations. And you never regretted not being born a black man, just because I just only say that because Hadley, I mean, because you played so soulfully. But Hadley Hawkinsmith, do you know that name? I don't. So Hadley uh, sort of flies below the radar, but right in the same era of uh, Dean Parks, uh, Larry Carlton, like that pedigree. He was Andre Crouch and Bread, and just a stealth player, and just like, but the same kind of person like you grew, grew up in the South, though. Um, and you know, uh, uh, listened to West Montgomery forever. And when he found out these guys were black, he's like, dude, I, he, and he like drank turpentine and almost killed himself. And it's like, you know, and, and, you know, like, yeah, okay. For you, you came to peace with it, but some people never come to peace with it. Some people, I, I mean, I was, I don't know if you ever played with Jerry Berganzi, but he, I just interviewed him. Very well. He's my beautiful dear friend. And he was talking about how much. We had a place together. Yeah, it's all. I mean, he was playing with Bob Galati. This music, very open. I, I know. You, I just want to get to the point of this and then have you respond. Yeah, like he was like, like they would get in and just hit it, and there was no time to think. And he was playing flurries of notes, and he'd listen back to it, and it's like, I hate that shit. But yet, he knew 
that it was coming from the most honest place. So it was the real stuff. And over time, he learned to like his sound more. It was very revelatory for a journalist like me to know that musicians actually sometimes have to come to peace with how they really sound. Well, I hate the way I sound on that Curtis Fuller. <laughs> Dude, I, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, though, because you know what? As a, as a, as a patron, I love it, man. <laughs> I was in my 20s. Dude, you haven't listened to it in a long time. You need to go back and, and you, I mean, again, I cringe when I listen. I'm interviewing Richard Davis 12 years ago, and I, I'm so insecure. I don't really know what to say, and he's just, <laughs> he's lecturing me. But, like, the cats help. One reason as a journalist, I mean, Stanley, Lenny, all these cats, they help me find my voice and become pretty fearless and do something completely unique. And I see that at that time, not that you're not still cooking, but at that time you were doing something completely singular. And it was, and in my mind, it was just really the, the pinnacle. You couldn't be doing anything better than that musically. I, I, I was in a happy place. I was in a happy place. Before I let you go, as we wrap up set one here with Bill Washer, it's been such an honor. Can you talk about... You're the first guy, and the guy that put me on my path, really, and unfortunately, I've never been able to reconnect with him. Uh, but is a guy that I'm thinking you might have crossed paths with was uh, Eric Kloss. Never did. Wow! Never did. Even even with nope. the Miles and Silverlight connection. I know. I know. Bizarre. Or, or uh, yeah, no, it was no. It's fine. Friend. It's fine. So we let, yeah, each other by you know yeah. By this much, by one train, you know. <laughs> so what? So tell me, like, what? What? Tell me one thing before I let you go. Um, I'll tell you, he's one of my most challenging interviews because he has such a gift of gab, and on top of that, he's just such a great drummer as Bill Goodwin, and yeah. um, you know, he's a very modest, humble guy. Uh, he's lived a really hardy life. Um, and I just look at him in that same time period that we've been focused on, laser, laser-like. He told me the story when he had this gig with Charles Lloyd when he was six. He, he was really young. And he played with like him for about six months. And <clears throat> after uh, this other cat who was like, you know, his peer, Charles Lloyd, who was a, 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 a student at USC at the time, gave it to his friend. And Bill was devastated but realized, uh, and I think... I'm trying to think who gave him a pep talk. It'll come to me in a minute. But adjacent to that, someone said, hey, man, oh, oh, Stan Levy, the drummer, he said, okay. hey, man, you got to get your hands together. You're gonna, if you're being serious about this, you got to get your shit together. And fast forward to that Bill Washer cranking time, I'm listening to Bob DeRoe, Multiplication Rock. I'm listening to Jack Wilkins, Red Clay, and Bill Goodwin is on fire. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about his drumming style, you know, and, and kind of how you guys have really kept your souls together uh, down at the Deerhead uh, Inn. Well, we've been we've been doing a, a weekly hit there. We we do like a, a jam session. We play for we'll play like a trio for an hour, and then we'll have people come up and sit in or take over whatever. And Bill is. Uh, He's just one of the most musical musical cats uh, on the drums, mm. and and he he's not shy, which is <laughs> great. But they, you know, he's not shy. That's what I'm saying. He just he'll, he'll, he'll drop these bombs in there once I in a while. I love it, dude. Like, Whoa, okay. Do you want to do that? Right. <laughs> yeah, just to just to get people get them out of their normal mindset. You know, that's the yeah, best yeah. part, man. You know, Gene uh, Pearl is going to write a, is putting trying to put a book together about Bill. Really? Yeah, he's been interviewing him. Maybe I shouldn't let that out. Well, no, that's. I mean, I Gene's a dear friend. I mean, all I'm saying is I have. I just did my. It's so interesting because Bill was one of my first guests back in like 20, 2011, 2012. and okay. I had not done spoken to him. We'd done a little bit of back and forth on Facebook and stuff, but I hadn't spoken to him. On and we uh, in like over eleven years, and we just had a ball yesterday. But he, I, I realized, I'm like. You know, I can throw, I could have all five pitches working as a pitcher, you know, and like, uh, you know, it's still not good enough with him. He'll he'll keep fighting it off and then he'll get the pitch he wants and he'll whack it out of the park, dude. It's unbelievable, well, Bill, man. Bill's amazing. I mean. He his, is, his, man. He is. His history is, is just unfair. Sta staggering. Stagger and a lot of stick -to 
and a lot of perseverance because he was parking cars at NBC, but he'd have the practice pad there and he'd have the paradiddles and he'd have jazz playing and, and then he'd tell people where to park their car. He wouldn't even do it for you. <laughs> he was determined to become a player, you know, and he did it, you know, and he continues to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole thing. It's, it's just perseverance. It's what you, you know, it's what, what, it's the only thing, it's the only thing I can do. Elvin used to say that. I said, why are you a drummer? He says, man, it's the only thing I can do. So, same way. Bill Washer, we'll do this again, man. And if I can get back to the East coast at a certain point, I, Really hope our paths cross. I can see you and Goodwin cooking the groove together, man. It's been a real honor. That'd be terrific. And good luck there in Arizona. Yo, man, I'll send you some. I'm, I'm, I'm going to send. I'm going to send you some uh, some interviews for you to listen to. I think you're going to really uh, get a kick out of them. Oh yeah, I appreciated the ones you sent me. Uh, well, no, I'm going to send you ones now from your from your homies, dude. I, I actually, okay. I, you'll you'll enjoy it a lot. And. uh yeah, man, let's stay in touch. It was really, it's, it's good to connect, brother. Thanks a lot, Jake. All right, be cool, brother. You too. Wait.